You're listening to STEM Essential, an Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council podcast. Hear from leading advocates and voices about why STEM education is crucial for our world today and tomorrow. Welcome, everybody, to Season 3 of STEM Essentials, podcast featuring some of Iowa's and the nation's leading thinkers in STEM. This series is all about vaccine by STEM. I'm Jeff Weld, Executive Director of the Governor's STEM Advisory Council, an economic development initiative where education and economic development merge to improve lives and communities. The people that we're hearing from are economic developers themselves, commingling jobs with learning. Today, featuring Mr. Ken Sharp, Acute Disease Prevention, Emergency Response, and Environmental Health Division Director for the Iowa Department of Public Health. He's also chair of the Infectious Disease Advisory Council. Ken has been with the IDPH for about a quarter century, forging innovations including the Environmental Health Services Network, the Public Health Tracking, and Advancing System Development Efforts for Time Critical Conditions, whatever that means, we will get into it. Academically, Ken majored in environmental science at Simpson College and earned his master's at Drake University after growing up in Altoona. An Iowan through and through, he is a father to three girls, an avid outdoorsman, and a national archery champion. Thank you for making time for joining us, Mr. Sharp. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I, I forget that that uh, profile is still out there. I forget about the archery uh, expertise that I uh, once possessed, but no longer do. Ah, I was going to ask for a demo, but that we lost <laughs> on our listeners. <laughs> well, let's begin by getting to know you a little bit better. Our mission at the STEM Council is connecting young Iowans with inspiring role models like you. Um, share with them a bit of your journey, especially the events or the people of your own K-12 years that set you on the path that has led you here? Oh boy, that's gonna take some time to go back and think through that. But uh, so, you know, as, as, you, as you found, um, I've always enjoyed a lot of time outdoors uh, and, and enjoyed the, uh, the therapeutics that come with uh, spending time outdoors. And so as I was um, going through my K through 12 experience, uh, I always enjoyed the sciences and learning more about kind of the natural uh, sciences and, and uh, how that impacted and interacted with, um, you know, humans and, and human life. And so as, um, as I went through those years, enjoying my time outdoors with my, with my dad and grandparents, uh, whether it was going on a pheasant hunting trip or whether it was fishing or whatever the case may be, um, there was always this keen draw to kind of better understand uh, the natural sciences. And that really, uh, you know, positioned me to look at um, undergraduate programs at Simpson College um, and was uh, very interested in their environmental sciences program, uh, which is what I graduated with is uh, with an environmental sciences degree and at Simpson, uh, and that was a number of years ago, as you noted. Um, but that uh, really, you know, gave me exposure to some phenomenal professors at Simpson College. Um, Dr. Uh, Kathy Baker, uh, she she's now uh, left us; she's uh, passed on. But uh, some of the information and and the influences that she had in my 
uh, decision making to pursue kind of the the natural sciences uh, world and better understanding environmental sciences and how it impacts um, you know what we do on a day to day basis and our uh, interactions was really foundational. So it was those personal interests growing up, you know, the exposures and experiences with with uh, you know science class and those kinds of things uh, in the K through 12, and then on to uh, the um, the undergraduate studies that really led me to where I am today. You know, what's going to be interesting, I think, to listeners is that your academic preparation, your, your schooling headed toward the environmental sciences didn't seem to have all that much, at least academically, to prepare you for the job you currently do. So it's, in a sense, a certain unpredictable career path that has brought you where you are. Any uh, any advice for listeners about that unpredictability about where they head? They head to college, they pick up a major, they assume a life that they imagine, yeah. but highly unlikely in some cases. Yeah, although uh, I think once I explain it, it, w- it will make a, a whole lot more sense uh, perhaps after the fact. And, and so you're right. Uh, much of my early years in my career and certainly my undergraduate work was in environmental sciences. Um, but if you look today at what my responsibilities are with respect to uh, emergency response efforts, if you think about the traditional uh, emergency response efforts public health has in Iowa, it's more typically related to floods or, or other natural disasters, uh, severe weather events and those kinds of, of things. And so as I came into um, my work here at the Department of Public Health, that actually came about as a result of, of uh, flood recovery work from 1993. And there was an interest in studying the impacts of those flood events from 1993 on private water wells. And so um, with my environmental science degree, there was a a natural alignment uh, to come in and work on what was supposed to be at the time a a temporary uh, work assignment uh, studying private water wells. Well, that led to a whole lot of other opportunities uh, to expand my environmental health expertise. And in my early years, I did a lot of work with county environmental health and public health uh, agencies, as well as boards of health, um, to really build some of the environmental health capacity that we have at the county level. And a big piece of that is uh, disaster response uh, when we have those natural flood events, severe weather events, or other similar types of, of issues. And so um, over a number of years of helping with disaster response, that broadened my exposures to other types of disaster response, like infectious disease, um, and and, uh, with the expertise that we have here at the health department in infectious disease with our medical director and our deputy state epidemiologist, um, it it became clear that while um, uh, disaster response may include those infectious diseases, those of us that oversee and, and help with the response don't necessarily need to have that direct medical experience, but the disaster response experience. And so after many years of dealing with flood response and and disasters, uh, those same skill sets apply very uh, consistently, whether it is uh, the Ebola concerns that we had back a number of years ago, or whether it is the COVID-19 response, many of the same concepts in terms of how we respond and manage to that are the same, regardless of whether it's a a new virus like we're dealing with uh, today in COVID-19, or whether it's a more traditional flood response that we see for a few weeks at a time uh, every few years in Iowa. You make a wonderful case for the major environmental sciences 
as opening all sorts of interesting doors for graduates from such programs. Well, speaking of your own professional career, let's, uh, let's fast forward to February, March of 2020. Uh, you and your team there at the Iowa Department of Public Health went from what I, I would consider a quiet, behind the scenes public servant to thrust into the spotlight. What, what were those first days, those first thoughts like when, uh, when you heard about COVID and uh, began to reckon with the realities of its presence in our state somewhere around March the 12th, I suppose? What was going on there? What was the vibe? What were you all thinking? Yeah, actually for us, uh, you talk about behind the scenes. It, it was actually starting for us in December of 2019. Uh, that was when we first started to hear um, uh, out of China uh, of this new virus, and we, you know, kind of keeping our uh, ears to the virtual ground on what was happening and and what we were seeing in terms of the spread and the behavior of that virus. And so we did begin to think through what what if uh, this, you know, does come to the United States, and what do we need to be prepared uh, to do? So. There was a lot of work by the entire department around a lot of educational uh, information for our local public health partners. So we had started on this long before March 5th, I think was the, the actual first date that we had a case that was uh, announced um, in Iowa. And um, I, I think at that time, you know, we always, for, for two decades or better, we've been planning for um, an epidemic-like response. And, you know, we always had in our mind the things that we think we would need to do, whether it was dealing with uh, the, the disease uh, tracking and response uh, or the other planning efforts to support hospitals and local public health efforts or, or whatever the case was. And I think what we quickly learned is uh, the planning was incredibly valuable, but it didn't have all of our answers uh, ready for us when we needed them. And so there was a, a great deal of need for adaptability. Uh, there was a great deal of need to draw on other experiences during other disasters and other responses that we've had for disease outbreaks. Um, and, and I think if we've learned anything over the last nearly 12 months, it has been you need to be flexible and you need to be ready to adapt and pivot and apply those um, you know, those, those educational experiences, that knowledge base, and then those professional real life experiences, you need to be able to adapt and, and apply those very quickly. It's interesting, you, you allude to a, a playbook that your department had developed that uh, would guide one through a pandemic, heaven forbid there ever would be one, and now there is one, yet even with a playbook, there's adaptability, there's pivoting, there's agility necessary. Is this to say that no matter how good the playbook, you, you can't anticipate much of uh, the necessary pandemic responses? Yeah, I think, the, I think the detail is, what you can anticipate is the detail. Uh, I think we, we can anticipate very uh, generally, um, you know, the types of things that we're going to need to do, whether it is uh, building capacity for healthcare systems, whether it is providing education to the public and healthcare providers or uh, providing support for local public health agencies that are really on the front line of dealing with these issues. We've always had a good idea in terms of the general plan, um, but where you, where you do, do see the need for that pivoting is with a brand new disease like this, um, the, the details aren't there yet. And, and we've, 
we've had many people uh, use the phrase, we are really building this airplane as we fly it. And that is in many cases true because of those, um, you know, those intricate details about the virus, how it behaves, uh, and what we need to do in terms of, of dealing with some of the logistical things that we'll be talking about here today with vaccine. Um, the details aren't available to you when you're doing your planning. And, and the necessity to be able to have these general concepts in your plans ready to go and then be able to adapt once those details do become more clear uh, has been, I think, reinforced incredibly strong uh, for, for us as we've worked through this uh, response. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I definitely want to bring our listeners into the details behind the vaccine work that you do. But before I do, uh, through your introduction, I mentioned to listeners that you brought an innovation to the Iowa Department of Public Health called System Development Efforts for Time-Critical Conditions. I have to believe whatever that means, it factored prominently into your dealing with COVID. What, what is this system development effort for time-critical condition? Yeah, that, this alone could take a, a few hours to talk through, but let me give you the Reader's Digest version here. It is, so as we look at um, our, um, when, when we talk about the term time-critical conditions, when we started with uh, that work, it was really around um, kind of a, um, an, an emergency response, emergency medicine, trauma care model. And uh, in the state of Iowa, we have um, uh, EMS in kind of one silo doing their thing. We've got the healthcare system and we have public health. All of them have been asked for uh, over a number of years to work together to develop you know, emergency response capabilities for, for larger scale disasters. And that might be, you know, something as, as um, kind of routine, if you will, as a, as a massive uh, car crash uh, or something as se severe and, and as long-term as what we're dealing with in terms of a pandemic response. Um, all of those conditions, whether it is a broken arm or, uh, you know, massive trauma to the body or uh, dealing with, acute infectious diseases, uh, all of those are time-critical conditions that need to be um, able to, to be dealt with and responded to. So back in 2015, we started working in six regions across the state um, to really, actually there were a few more than that, we, we, we're now kind of focusing on six regions um, that would um, bring together local public health, hospital officials, EMS services, county emergency managers, and start thinking about rather than uh, 99 county health departments and 118 hospitals and 730 or 750 EMS services kind of trying to deal with these issues on their own, how do we come together more systematically to think about a system of how we leverage each other's expertise and capacity to deal with these disasters when they do come? whether it is the routine heart attack uh, or a car crash victim or something more severe like a pandemic, uh, when we work together as a system and plan as a system, we do better in the long run. And so that work really has led to some uh, incredible work uh, at the local level between those partners that I listed earlier to really plan for events like this. And some of the mass vaccination clinics that you see standing up and, and being carried out, you mentioned Nafisa earlier today and the work that she's doing. Much of her work was built off of this concept of systems development to stop thinking about ourselves as an individual agency or entity and really to think about when I have a role in a system, 
who are the people downstream and upstream for me that I'm going to impact and how do we work together more effectively to deal with that patient care. I can't help but make the tie to your undergraduate major in environmental science of, of any major, any degree, any professional, an environmental scientist uh, habitually looks at systems, ecosystems and integration yep. and dependencies and the domino effect and how that can be applied, obviously, in uh, healthcare and economics and any other human endeavor. Well, let's get into the vaccine, the business of today. The, the topic of the uh, of the podcast is vaccine by STEM. And I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, I think before we began recording, that our first uh, episode was the County Health Department Director, Nafisa Cicciabonier in Waterloo. And then we brought in the medical school dean at the uh, University of Iowa College of Medicine to talk about infectious mechanisms and health risks. Then a vaccine researcher at Iowa State University took us deep into how the COVID-2 um, virus works and how we can vanquish it, hopefully. So today we're uh, interested in two pursuits with you, Ken. One is simply the colossal task, the logistics of distributing the vaccine across the state. And then second, your advisor council's creation of that phase system for prioritizing Iowans uh, for getting the vaccine. So let's go first to uh, the distribution challenge. Take us behind the curtains to the degree that you can. Uh, you know, the layperson imagines boxes of vials from some federal warehouse arriving in your office by FedEx and your team forwarding them on to the counties. But in reality, how does this distribution task work? Yeah, so good question. I, I think I'll I'll tie back to very briefly the conversation that we've had about systems discussion. Um, Iowa, as a decentralized state, local rural state, um, all of our county health departments have been asked uh, to create a local vaccine uh, campaign and, and plan. And so all 99 counties have been working with their local system partners to decide how they would manage a, a, vac a mass vaccination campaign like we're dealing with now. And so when we look at that, we really focus locally first, and then how do we support that local structure? And so to, um, uh, to that level then, so we here at the State Health Department really try to frame up our logistical approach to support that local system. And then we plug into what our federal partners at Operation Warp Speed and CDC uh, and what they have for logistical support to get vaccines to us. And so what is a little bit unique about Iowa compared to some of the other states, I think perhaps you've seen on, in, in media uh, from other states, there are some states that receive vaccine in a central stockpiled location and then they break those vaccines down into smaller packages and send it out across the, their respective state. Uh, for Iowa, we don't have that type of an operation uh, because we have such a strong uh, network of understanding at the local level of what their vaccination plans are. What we do have across the state is about 1,800 uh, vaccine providers that are enrolled with the Department of Public Health um, that can receive vaccine. And those 1,800 providers work directly with their local public health agencies then to identify what their capacity is and um, 
you know, how many doses of vaccine they can manage in a week's time and those kinds of things. And so each week what we do is um, CDC gives us a pro rata allocation of the number of doses that the state is going to receive in a given week. Uh, Iowa is about 1% of the um, population in the United States. And so we receive about 1% of the vaccines that are available each week through the federal government. And so then CDC notifies the state health department of how many doses we're going to receive uh, for a given week. And we then apply our own pro rata uh, application of uh, those doses to the county level. And we notify the counties, here's how many doses that you have uh, coming to you in the next week. Where would you like them delivered? And they can choose among those 1,800 vaccine providers uh, which ones they want those doses delivered to. And in every case, the county health department is also an enrolled vaccine provider. So they may accept some of those doses themselves for mass clinics. And then we turn around and share that information with CDC and say to CDC, of the doses that you're sending to us next week, here's where we want them shipped. So they're drop shipped directly from CDC via FedEx. Uh, directly to that local vaccine provider, and they begin vaccinating as soon as those doses hit the shelf and they are thawed out and ready to go. And so uh, the advantage for us is uh, that means within hours after those vaccines show up, those vaccine providers can start putting shots in arms as opposed to if we place the order, send it to a central location in Des Moines, break it down, send it out, it's gonna take us several days to do that. And when we place an order, uh, for vaccine with CDC, uh, those uh, orders are showing up as early as the next day to maybe two to three days after the fact. So it is a very streamlined process. It works and it works well, uh, and it takes a lot of the logistical challenges out from from our hands and and lets it uh, rest with those who know logistics, like uh, FedEx and other uh, national shipping companies. Yeah, love it. Thank you for the insight. Uh, you mentioned shots in arms. That's where I want to go next. Uh, you chaired a very interesting group as a bioethics fan. Uh, the, the task you took up there is profound and sobering. And that task was to devise this phase uh, shot prioritization uh, scaffold. And I know you had guidance from the CDC. They put out some guidelines, as did the National Institutes of Health and the National Academies of Science. And so you were getting uh, the critical subpopulation guidance from these major national entities. So the question I have on behalf of our listeners, so what details remain to be resolved by you and this advisory council as to who's phase 1A and who's phase 2C, et cetera? Yeah. So right now, the, the work of the Infectious Disease Advisory Council has paused. Um, and we, we have paused that work largely because uh, for the foreseeable future, we have what we feel are the um, priority groups that we need to target on uh, first. And so you mentioned earlier some of the federal organizations that had already provided guidance. The Advisory Council on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, uh, from CDC did offer uh, recommendations to states, and they too have a phased approach. Uh, and for phase one, it, it is phase 1A, 1B, and 1C. And so phase 1A, um, it was was two main populations. One is healthcare personnel, and that isn't just your licensed healthcare providers, but anyone working in healthcare. Um, so it was the full comprehensive uh, 
approach to make sure that the healthcare system could continue to work effectively and provide care for sick patients. And then the other half of uh, phase 1A were residents of long-term care settings and the staff that support those settings. Uh, so we have moved beyond phase 1A. That one was pretty straightforward and everybody agreed our, our elderly uh, and living in those conditions and our healthcare system needed to be shored up first in case we start to see a resurgence of uh, the disease and, and a stress on the, um, on the hospitals and the healthcare system. So where IDAC's work was probably the most um, heavy in terms of a lift was really looking at the recommendations for phase 1B and 1C as recommended by ACIP. Um, ACIP, the Advisory Council on Immunization Practices from CDC, focused very heavily on a broad range of uh, essential workforce. Uh, and while we all agreed on IDAC as we had those conversations, while we all agreed it would be fantastic if we can get to all of those essential workforce early and often, um, as we looked at uh, the other critical populations in the ACIP recommendations, uh, we recognized a, a real conflict that we had to navigate. And that conflict was the supply of vaccine will never meet the demand in the, in the short term. Um, and what we were watching at the same time in some of the other states uh, that had moved forward with largely following the ACIP recommendations or opening up a fairly broad uh, list of eligible candidates, uh, a lot of frustration from the public, uh, a lot of frustration from the public about being perceived that they can get the vaccine and get it now, and the vaccine just wasn't there for them to access. So as, as IDAC sat down and really started to take a look at the phase 1B and 1C, what they really honed in on were a, a couple of things that caused um, IDAC to make some recommendations to postpone several of the essential workforce categories. And the focus that IDAC had during those conversations was we want to know and we want to prioritize those individuals who work in environments that can't socially distance, um, who are also at a highest risk of exposure and a highest risk of consequence. Uh, so we looked at that more generally um, than just the workforce. And we really looked at, um, you know, what are the populations that have suffered the most consequence from this? And what are the workforces that we need to ensure are in place so that we can address some of the concerns that we've seen as a result of this, uh, of this illness? So we know coming out of phase 1A, and we dealt with you know, a, a large focus on the um, long-term care population, just looking at the data, the, the population of 65 and older are suffering the most serious, serious consequences in terms of morbidity and mortality. Uh, that is who is the sickest, and that is who is, uh, you know, uh, dying from this disease. And so IDAC very clearly felt we need to work on that that population. But then there are also, if you look in the documents that are available from the department website, we have a tiered approach in Phase 1B that helps further prioritize some of those essential workforce populations. And so currently, uh, most counties are also working through uh, Tier 1. Of phase 1B. So you have your 65 and older, um, that population is going to be eligible for some period of time. Uh, and we've also started working on the uh, first responders. So your law enforcement officers, fire department personnel, uh, EMS providers, if they didn't get 
uh, vaccinated in phase 1A. They're, they, they are uh, eligible right now. And then our teachers. We know we had a lot of young kids missing out on services that they became very dependent upon. And we saw young kids, uh, you know, having a very difficult time with remote learning or combined uh, remote and in-person learning. So IDAC felt that those two were, were uh, among the highest priority of those uh, populations. And then as we look through the, the remaining tiers, and I won't go through all of those for the sake of our time, but it does look at, for example, as we look into tier two, it does look at individuals with disabilities who have uh, dependent care uh, to, to support them. And we know individuals with those severe disabilities are also at an increased risk of consequences from COVID-19. The other group that's in tier two, uh, are the workforce that work in settings or live in settings that are congregate in nature where you can't socially distance. And we know from early in this uh, disease or this uh, pandemic, uh, we had a number of folks that uh, were in meatpacking industry uh, that had some disproportionate impacts uh, in terms of consequences. And we also know many of those same workforce uh, live in congregate settings where it's multi-generational housing, and they're not able to socially distance like many, uh, many others are. And so we use that same type of, of um, thinking to help work through how do we ensure that we're getting the vaccine to those who are most susceptible from the disease and who are most likely to come into contact with the illness or with the virus because of the nature of where they work and how they work. And we've asked everybody else to, not to say that they're less important, but most of these other industries that we hear from or these other occupations that we hear from, we've watched them do a phenomenal job applying mitigation measures, socially distanced measures in their workforce, whether it's grocery store workers, whether it's um, water and wastewater operators or individuals that work in restaurants. They've done a phenomenal job putting in mitigation practices to help minimize their risk. And we're asking them to do that for a few more months until we can get enough vaccine in-house so that we can get to those broader populations and move through those more, more quickly. So that was the general premise of the IDAC thinking. Uh, very difficult conversations, but very uh, rich and thoughtful conversations of how we make sure that those who are going to be most likely to be exposed because they can't avoid it, uh, and those who are most susceptible to the exposure of COVID-19 uh, were our highest priority. Wow, I'm sure on behalf of all listeners, I express gratitude to you and the advisory council for that obviously deep thought and care that went into that uh, that uh, strategy. And you mentioned the advisory council's in pause. Obviously, the tiers have been established and it's enacted. And I hope all my listeners forgive me for asking this question, but you've satisfied a, a tiered administrative strategy for COVID V2. Let's say down the line there's a COVID V3 or whatever it may be. I hate even asking the question, but there's an inevitability. All the experts tell me that there will be another pandemic. How how uh, how much reanalysis or scrambling of this strategy will need to be done, or is it good to go now for the next one, if and whenever you've got your tiers established? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. I think um, you know if we look whether it's uh, 12 months down the road or 10 years down the road before we deal with another pandemic or a significant variation of the current virus, um, I think we will always have to take a look at the way that virus behaves and how it impacts the various populations. Uh, so we know, for example, from our experience with H1N1 back in 2009, 
um, there were different populations that were more seriously impacted. It was different age groups than what we, we saw here. And so I do think that de- depending upon the circumstances and the way any particular um, illness uh, behaves uh, and what that virus may do, uh, it will cause us to reassess and make uh, you know, more appropriate determinations once we have that information available. And we have even said with the current um, approach that as we watch uh, the behavior of some of these new strains or the variants of the COVID-19 back, uh, virus that we're watching now, um, right now, all indications are the vaccine remains effective um, and, and is going to continue to provide a good level of protection. If that changes at some point, um, that will obviously cause us to reevaluate and, and take another look at, do we need to rethink our prioritizations? Um, the other key factor here for us that has been the biggest influencing factor in our ability to get to everyone who wants a vaccine is the supply just isn't meeting demand yet. And it's going to be that way for a few more months, we're told. And we hope by May, we start to see supply exceed demand, according to what our federal partners are telling us. Good to, good to know. It's not a matter of shortage of sites. It's not a matter of shortage of shot givers. It is supply coming to Iowa. That is correct. So patience and responsibility, listeners, for a few more months. Uh, grateful to you and your team for all the work that you're doing to usher us through this. Uh, one final question for you, Ken. We are likely to see a surge in interest. We are seeing a surge in interest among young people in careers like yours as a result of living through this. Any advice, any final advice for K-12 students, including perhaps your own daughters who might want to do what you do for a living? Yeah, so the, um, uh, you know, if there is advice, it is get involved. You know, learn more about what your local public health systems have in the way of career opportunities. Uh, don't think that just, you know, because you're going into environmental science that you'll never get into uh, a, a more broad a- approach to disaster response. You know, keep those uh, keep those blinders off and look in your peripheral view. Oftentimes, you know, had you asked me um, 27 years ago uh, when I started at the state health department, would I be in the position that I am in now and working on the things that I'm working on now? I probably would have never envisioned that. Um, and it was, it, was the, it was the things that happened in the peripheral vision that uh, were kind of these flashy, shiny items that you turn and look and dig into those a little bit that, that did broaden your uh, experiences. And I think it, the other thing that I've learned is that in every one of these experiences, you take away a lesson. Uh, and that lesson can be applied somewhere else uh, in a similar setting, perhaps a different topic. But those lessons, um, you know, prepare you for those challenges and those different opportunities that will come. So uh, don't look too far ahead uh, for a goal that you may be missing in the periphery. Um, And that's going to be very important for folks to just understand, you know, keep that that horizon open, scan that horizon once in a while and uh, take some chances and expose yourself to some of those new opportunities that you really didn't think were uh, necessarily in your immediate field of interest. Uh, because, um, you know, as you've noted, an environmental science guy that was particularly interested in natural sciences, you know, ending up in the position that I am working with EMS professionals and uh, folks in the hospital setting and working on infectious disease response efforts. Um, It it was uh, not a clear path at the time, but it makes a whole lot of sense looking back 27 years. 
priceless advice and a great note to end on. Mr. Ken Sharp, Acute Disease Prevention, Emergency Response, and Environmental Health Division Director at the Iowa Department of Public Health. Thanks so much for educating us on the mammoth task of vaccine distribution and all that you and your team are doing to usher Iowans through this historic havoc. Thank you. I've uh, enjoyed my time today. Greatly appreciate the opportunity. Us too. This has been episode four of our third season of STEM Essential Podcasts, featuring the voices of Edunomic Innovation, presented by the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council and sponsored by Acumold, world leader in precision micromolding, headquartered right here in Ankeny. Thank you for listening. Today's and all STEM Essential Podcasts are available at iowastem.org forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to STEM Essential. This podcast is generously co-sponsored by Collins Aerospace and Mid-American Energy, proud partners of Iowa STEM Council. To learn more and find resources, please visit iowastem.gov.